Welcome parents, nannies, and everybody else who's streaming us. This is The Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents. I'm your host, Drew Nash, coming to you from One to One Pediatrics in Danville, California. This is episode 114. We have a terrific show for you today on a topic that is important to all parents, grandparents, and caretakers who have smaller kids around, childproofing. In today's episode, we will discuss things to consider both in and outside of your home to keep your child safe. There are different issues that become relevant depending on the age of your child. My guest and I will give you both small and big picture items to think about and take care of to minimize the chances of your child getting injured or worse. In addition, we'll continue the segments, pediatric fun facts and parenting horror stories. At the end of the show, I'll answer a question from a listener. For those people who randomly downloaded this but don't know what they did, the owner's manual, a podcast for parents, is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most other podcasting platforms. The listener base is growing, but since I'm always trying to build our audience, I'm calling on you all to help spread the word. Tell your friends, neighbors, the mailman, People you pass on the street and anybody else you know who might like listening to us, how to find us. Follow us on whatever platform you use to hear us so you can be notified when each new episode becomes available. In addition, we're on Facebook at the Owner's Manual Podcast, where you can like us, post a comment, post a question to be answered on the show, or even tell your parenting horror story. If there's a topic you just can't wait to hear about, this is a great way to let us know. Also, I've started posting information, photos, and videos to add a visual component to some of our segments. So check it out and like us. And now for the weekly boring disclaimer. While we hope that listeners are able to learn and benefit from the content of this show, The information discussed on the owner's manual is not intended to diagnose or treat any specific individual or condition. There is no substitute for direct patient care from a trained clinician. If you have concerns about your child, we recommend that you make an appointment with your child's primary care physician for an evaluation. Before we jump into the main topic, it's time for pediatric fun facts. Each week, I bring you an interesting pediatric factoid or historical item that you probably didn't know and might not believe. My head is chock full of these things and I'm hoping to clean up the clutter by sharing it with you. So let's get to it. Pediatric Fun Facts. Did you know that there are five classic childhood exanthems or rashes in pediatrics? There used to be six of them, but one went away. I'll explain this later. So prior to the modern day era of vaccinations and antibiotics, where many childhood diseases could be prevented or easily treated, physicians were trained to identify the six classic childhood illnesses that were associated with rashes. They were numbered one through six. These all presented with red rashes all over the body and each had their own constellation of associated symptoms. In modern medical times, Only one of these diseases is still referred to by its number. To add to the experience here, I've posted some photos of each of these classic rashes on our Facebook page. Check it out and see what they look like. Before I go into detail and tell you what they are, I'm going to give you all a minute to think and see how many you can come up with. Remember, some of these diseases are now prevented by vaccination, so that's a hint. Others are treated with antibiotics, and some just run their course on their own. Okay, here's your time to guess out loud. How did you do? How many could you list? Okay, here's the answer. Here are the six classic pediatric exanthems in numerical order. Number one. First disease, measles, also called the 14-day measles or hard measles. This is now prevented by the MMR vaccine. Number two, second disease, scarlatina 
or scarlet fever, also known as strep throat with a rash. This is easily treated with antibiotics these days. Number three, third disease, rubella or German measles, also called three-day measles and now prevented by the MMR vaccine. Number four, fourth disease, Philatow Duke's disease, which no longer exists. Some people believe that this illness may have been a version of Staph Scalded Skin Syndrome, but this is kind of controversial. In any event, we don't see it anymore. Number five, fifth disease, erythema infectiosum, or slap cheek. This is still called fifth disease. This is a benign, self-limited viral illness that causes a distinctive rash. The only time this illness is of concern is when it occurs in women who are pregnant or in a person with a hemolytic lug disease, such as sickle cell disease. Since most people get this illness during childhood, it is unusual to make it to adulthood without being immune to it. And finally, last but not least, number six, six disease, exanthem subitum, or roseola infantum. This is another self-limited viral illness that's associated with high fever at the onset and then progresses to a classic rash. This usually occurs in toddlers and doesn't require any specific treatment. It goes away by itself. So there they are. Now you know. Probably not information you would normally be asked to come up with, unless you are a pediatric resident, or maybe if you are playing some kind of obscure medical trivia game. And that is your pediatric fun fact for the day. And now on to the show. My guest today attended UC Berkeley and went on to attend medical school at Duke University. She completed her pediatric internship and residency at Stanford. After completing her training, she joined the Alamo Medical Group, where she has been practicing for almost 30 years. She has a devoted patient following and is a respected primary care pediatrician, both by patient and peers. I've had the pleasure to work alongside her for 16 years. Please welcome to the show, Lynn White. Welcome to the show, Lynn. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And I'm glad you're here. And today we're going to talk about childproofing and keeping your kids safe. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, a little bit of background. I think it's important for everyone to know that just everyday life is full of dangers and your kids aren't born prepared to figure out what's dangerous. Um, right. So developmentally, they don't have a sense of that. No, they don't know no. how to safely navigate our world. So, and it's all kinds of things. It's hot things, it's sharp objects, it's can they cross the street, a bunch of things like that. A lot of things that I think even like intuitively an animal like a pet knows to stay away from fire, <laughs> but kids don't. No. Yeah. So when they see something that's moving, like, you know, um, a fire pit and it looks interesting to like, them and they go over right. and they want to touch it, they want to be close to it yes. and they don't know that it could burn them. Whereas like your dog would not do that. And they don't even have the kind of reaction, like if they um, stand on something that's really hot, they'll just stand there like what happened. They won't even um, walk away like we right. would, or even your dog would start running away. Yes. So let's dig in and start getting to things that we can do to kind of help until our kids get the idea about what to do and what not to do. And that can develop at different ages for different children. What should we talk about? So I think we can talk about it um, in a lot of different ways. We could start with just some really basic things with age. So babies come out and they really don't move around or anything. So mm -hmm. you just have to think about not leaving them on anything. You can't leave them on a bed or a sofa. Um, you don't know how often I see babies that fell off their parents' bed or they fell off the sofa when the parents thought that they were safe. All they do is they move a little bit, they roll to their side, and momentum makes them go off the side of it. It's that gravity thing. Yeah. It's always there. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then there's the guilt that goes along with it, so... So just because your kid can't roll doesn't mean they're not going to roll. No. Uh, First time's always a surprise. Um, you can't leave them unattended in any type of water. And that's true of all kids really, or up to a certain age. But so you can't be like, oh, I'm just going to go get something really quick. They're in the bath or sitting in their little seat. They're going to be fine. Right. So even for like half a second, if your kid, say you've got a one-year-old who's sitting in the bath ring or just sitting in the tub, that's not something you can go answer the door or grab your phone out of the other room or something. No. No. And then the other real baby thing is if you do bottles, making sure you don't microwave them because you yep. can end up with hot spots and end up burning their mouth. Okay. 
But a lot of it really is the older kids. And to childproof, you have to see the world like they see it. So I tell my patients to get on the floor and crawl around. So I do too. I did the same thing. Because it looks different from a foot off the ground than it does from it does. five, six feet off the ground. It does. You see things. You're going to notice things that you yeah. didn't notice before. And so you need to crawl around and look for the sharp edges. So mm -hmm. like the raised fireplace hearth, the yep. sharp edges on furniture. And they make things that you can order online or you can buy it like hardware stores or baby stores to put on that raised fireplace hearth to put yep. on the corners of the furniture. Um, you need to look at cords that can hang down where they could pull a lamp or something else over on themselves. Something I tell people is like sharp edges under a piece of furniture, so like under a coffee table, there mm -hmm. might be staples or nails sticking down that you would never see and never touch from your vantage point. Yeah. yeah. And they go under there and they play under there because it's like a little cave and they can come up and hit their head and get a laceration. Yep. Um, and so some of these things make your household or your furniture not look that attractive. But what I tell parents is there's nothing more aesthetically pleasing than a house that's safe for your kid. Exactly. Yeah. So good. Uh, they need to make sure that they crawl around and make sure furniture is anchored. Yep. Um, so your child's going to learn to pull to stand and you might not even think that they're ready to do that yet. And they can pull up to stand on a light bookcase or pull a drawer out, pull to stand on that. And the whole thing can come over on them. And, and say they sell anchoring kits that are labeled either for childproofing and also for earthquake proofing, where, mm -hmm. but really it's the same thing. Yeah. Your furniture needs to be earthquake proof because that's what your child is, is a mobile earthquake. <laughs> <laughs> so anchoring your furniture, looking at blinds, if cords hang down, you don't want them to be able to get those and get them wrapped around their neck. Mm -hmm. And that happens. Definitely. So long strings for off your blinds need to be shortened so that they can't grab them. They need to be um, and one thing that I just want to point out just from personal experience is if you're going to shorten the cord, the blind cords, lower your blinds first, <laughs> because I've known people that I've been related to that pulled the blinds open and cut the cords and then you can't lower the blinds again. So, <laughs> yeah. So lower the blinds and then adjust the cord length so that it's not reachable by That's the That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise you ring your blinds. The other thing is, um. Is there any place in your life with a toddler at home for a glass coffee table? No, I don't <laughs> think <laughs> Some things you just need to move out right. until your child grows yeah. up. So glass coffee tables, I can virtually, if you have a glass coffee table, I can guarantee you that I'm going to be putting stitches in that kid's face at least once, if not more. Yeah. Um, so. Shelving close to the ground. Yep. So that's another common one mm -hmm. that, you know, the child falls and hits their head. <laughs> it happens. Um, so I think looking at doors. So mm -hmm. some knobs, knobs you can turn. Some have the little like just. So what down. to do about that? So if you have the ones that you just push down, you need to have a lock up high. So your child can't wander out the front door, wander out into the street. So you can get a little chain to put up high mm -hmm. or um, a lock to put there. It doesn't need to be necessarily burglar proof no it needs to be toddler proof so exactly. a little light chain might not be strong enough to keep an invader out but it would be strong enough to keep a toddler in yes yeah so that they also have these things i don't even know what they're called but they're like a little latch that goes on the inside of the door frame that like it can fold at a right angle and can keep the door closed again it's Probably not a burglar proof thing, but it definitely will keep a toddler in. Yeah, I've seen those. They kind of go yeah. up and you flip them over. Yeah, Or right, exactly. you go up and you open it. That thing. So so that's probably good enough. The only other consideration you want to keep in mind is you probably don't want it to be durable enough that like people couldn't get in if there was an emergency. So that's not going to keep a, a fire... Man, no, those screw on, yeah. you know, those are just little screws. So yeah. it's something that the parents can right. do at home. So good enough for a toddler, but not... Not going to totally make your house inaccessible. Um, windows upstairs are important. And Huge. so putting, you can put like locks or guards. So you can put guards that they can only go up a certain amount. Right. And making sure that you don't put furniture that they can climb up to get on the window. Mm -hmm. Because it's fairly common that kids will actually fall out of a second story window. They see someone outside playing. They push on the screen and they fall out. Yeah. So some windows have those built in. And you might not even realize if your window does on vinyl windows, I know there's sometimes a little plastic mechanism that will pop out. And that is just designed to keep the window from opening more than, say, nine inches or so, so that toddler can't push through. But that happens. Toddlers fall out of windows. Oh, they do. Yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. So <laughs> we, I have too. And uh, it's not a good thing. So making sure that second story window, you know, you and thinking about most windows are high enough that a toddler can't access that 
from the ground, but if there's a piece of furniture like a couch or a chair, they'll want to do that. They like to look out and see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the other, the obvious things, safety plugs and outlets are really important. Yep. Gates are very important um, for the stairs. So you want to make sure at the top and the bottom. Let's go back to the safety plugs because there's different types. Mm -hmm. So there's the little inserts that get put in, but they also can get taken out. And then people don't put them back in when right. they unplug something. Yeah. So common thing is someone comes to clean your house and takes the plugs out to plug in the vacuum or whatever. Or you do it yourself. And But it's important to replace those because yes. they don't do any good if they're sitting on the windowsill or on the floor. You can get the ones that turn. Yep. Those are easy because yep. when you unplug it, it goes back to the So I position. like those ones, at least for the, if there's outlets that are going to be in an area where like maybe there's a, a lamp already plugged in. So a toddler will like to unplug it. And then of course what they want to do is try to plug it back in again. And so if you have one of those self-arming ones, then it automatically will protect it. So they can't do that. Yeah. So those are good. Yeah. Um, gates are important. Gates are very um, important. And you want the gate to be secure so they can't push it down and fall down the stair with the gate. Mm -hmm. um, Another thing, just as far as balconies and stairs, older houses, oftentimes the railing, like on a mezzanine or a railing for um, banisters going up and down the stairs, if, if it's an older house, the code specifications have changed and you want to make sure that those bars are close enough together that a kid can't put their head through. So, or you can put, you can attach stuff to it. Yeah, so there's mesh and things like that. And you can even get heavy plastic. So mm -hmm. we did that at my parents' house at Tahoe because it was not up to code when yep. our kids were little. So think about that and think about what your kid could fit through, whether it's all the way through, fall through or part way through and get stuck and strangulate. Not good. But again, some of these solutions aren't the most attractive, but there's nothing more attractive than a safe, no. <laughs> safe home. And they're temporary things. Yeah. Your house isn't going to look like that forever. Nope. Um, other things. So you want to make sure that all your cleaning supplies are locked, um, away from the child because mm -hmm. most of those are potentially dangerous. Um, you want to make sure you don't have any poisonous house plants and also look for poisonous plants outside in your yard too, right. because kids will eat things. Yeah. So kids, kids are things. really oral and especially in the first couple of years. So make so I really like to recommend the truly poisonous things be put up high, not just putting one of those latches on a on a cabinet under the sink because I think sometimes again uh, someone can come into your house that isn't thinking about your child's safety and leave a cabinet open and then the child crawls around and has access. No, so, I agree. It's better yeah. for it to be high. Yeah, high um, and I think some people have a hard time doing that with their cleaning supplies, but they are better off high yeah. and, and one definitely of the, locked. One of the things that happened to me personally is I had all my stuff up high and we had someone come over to clean our house and they have one of those little totes they carry around from room to room. And, you know, it was just cleaning but left the tote. And then the kid crawls over and is playing with all the different cleaning sprays that's just left on the floor. So kind of educating people that might come into your house and have access to this stuff to think about your child. Yeah. Yeah. And also making sure in your garage because you have a lot of poisonous and toxic things in the garage. Yes. So those need to be up and locked away too. You know, you Absolutely. might think that your child isn't going to play in the garage, but you open the garage door, they're playing in the driveway with their little cars and stuff like that. And they go in and see something and it looks interesting. They don't yeah. know what it is. Yeah. And a lot of poisonous things actually look interesting. Like rat poison looks like green pop rock candy. Yeah. It looks, I don't know why they make it look so interesting, but it does. And... Um, never assume your kid won't eat anything. No, and we can kind of get off topic and go to the medication part of it, but, you know, that's another thing that you need to keep locked and up high and in their original containers that are safety-proof. Yep. Um, and they'll look at it and either because they're mimicking. Kids, little kids love to mimic what they're doing. They see you taking something, so they're going to do it, or it looks like it tastes good, and yep. they're going to want to eat it. Um, I think everyone should have the number for poison control. And what is that number? So it's 1-800-222-1222. And that's nationwide. Nationwide, so. and it's an amazing resource. And one of my great stories about that is I had a child who was brought into my office because they had just been bit by a snake when they were walking with their nanny. Mm -hmm. And so the nanny had no idea what kind of snake it was. And the concern is there's rattlesnakes sure. in this area. So I called Poison Control, and they sent me... Uh, emails of different pictures of snakes and they said ask her to come in here and point out and she pointed out the snake that looked like a rattlesnake so then we had them take the child to children's and at the point at that point the child was doing great they were probably got here within like 10 minutes by the time they got there they were having a reaction they had huge amounts of anti-venom um, and was hospitalized at children's 
but did great. Because you and knew early on that this was a, a rattlesnake, it was a rattlesnake based on so, Control's help. Yeah, because the child wasn't having any reaction at that point. But even, you know, 20, 30 minutes later when they got to children's, they were already starting to have a reaction. So they are a resource for things like that. For, they're a resource for poisons, obviously, but they're a resource for potential medications. They can identify medicines based on pill color and markings on the pill, even if you have no idea what that pill is and where it came from and all sorts of things. They can be helpful if you maybe gave two doses and you want to know if it's dangerous. They help in so many situations. Yeah. So if in doubt, that really is your first phone call. And a lot of times when people call the office asking about this sort of a situation, I'll have them call poison control and then call me right back and let me know what they said. Yeah. Because you don't want to waste time because they are right on it and they have all that data. Yeah. So... Definitely a number that again. everyone number should again. have. 1-800-222-1222. And you should literally put that in your phone and put it on your refrigerator so the babysitter can see it. And um, it should be everywhere. And yeah. everyone should know that number, whether they have a child or not, because you never know when you're going to be, you know, walking down the street and whatever, encounter someone who needs that number. It's just good to have. So while we're talking about bathroom things, razors yes. are another good example. Yes, and yes. kids want to mimic what they see other people doing. So mm -hmm. if they see that razor there, they might try to shave their face or shave their legs. So mm -hmm. those need to be put away. Mm -hmm. um, everything and sharp. It's sharp. Yeah. yeah. Everything sharp should be put away. So and people leave them right there in the bathtub or right there in the shower and the kids in the bathtub and it just takes a second. Yeah. Yeah. My own child did that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so other things, um, start, we can go back to the kitchen, but in the kitchen, you need to crawl around and really look at what can they almost reach? What yep. can they almost open? Think about not only right then, but what are they going to be able to do in a month or two? Right. You want to stay ahead of them. Yes. You don't want to be childproofing for their developmental level and their size. Now you want to kind of be a little more proactive about where they'll be. So could they get into a drawer or even almost get into a drawer that has sharp knives? Yep. Those should have the childproof latches on yep. them. Could they open a cabinet that has something that's glass or something that's sharp? Those mm -hmm. need to have the latches on it. Yep. When you're in the kitchen and you have things on the stove, the handles should be toward the back. Okay. So you... Because things are hot cooking. Yeah. And, and they're they will, curious. They will reach up and they'll try to, um, they'll hit the um, yep. handle, they'll knock it off, they'll pull it over on themselves and get scald burns. Um, if you have appliances, unplug them if you're not using them. Yep. Make sure the cords aren't hanging over where they could pull a heavy, you know, Instapod or something like that over right. on themselves. Yep. That'll hurt them and burn them. <laughs> even if it's not, but even if it's not on, right. it's still no, heavy. Right, no, it's a giant Cuisinart. Yeah. Those things are heavy. It's still yeah. really well, heavy. You, and it's amazing how hard they can pull just because they can. It's not like a, a logical thing. They just do it because they can. The kitchen and the bathroom are the two most dangerous rooms yeah. in the house, really, because that's where things are hot. That's where things are sharp. That's where things are potentially slippery and hard. And that's where there's water in, you know, a tub. Yeah. And, and in a toilet. And in so a toilet. So people think, I mean, kids can drown in the littlest bit of water. You should always close the lid. They make locks that you can put on the lid so your child can't go head first when they say, oh, look at all that water to play yep. in and drown in the um, toilet. And that's probably the most horrific way to die, I would have to think. <laughs> I mean, seriously, yes, my kid drowned in the toilet. You yeah. Know, it's just, that's not a story you want to tell. Not that you want your kid to die of any way, but that's got to be the worst. Yeah. Yeah. And in the bath, uh, making sure you never leave them. I know we talked about that before. Mm -hmm. And turning your hot water heater down to at max 120 degrees. Right. And why is that? So because your child will either accidentally or on purpose turn around, touch the nod knobs that they see you doing, and they can make the water really hot. And they don't understand what's happening. And they don't necessarily start to cry or try to get out of the water. And if they're in they're one of those stunned. little rings. They're stunned yeah. by the heat. Yeah. So, or if they're in one of those rings, they can't even get out. Yep. So making sure the water's down, even if you think that would never happen. But 120 degrees, above 120 degrees, they can get a full thickness burn in a matter of a few seconds. And when it's just that much cooler, like at 110, it takes longer. So there's more time for them to cry. And not that they won't get burned, but they won't like need skin grafting. Okay, so some other things to think about. Um, if you live in a house with firearms, and hopefully you don't have firearms in your house with children. But, but they, some people do. But some people do. So they need to be um, unloaded, locked up, and the firearms should be um, locked up separate from the ammunition. Mm -hmm. So, And your children should not know where they are. So I, I think that's also important. Right. Even if you lock them, they should not know where they are. And I always ask. But still, probably once, maybe twice a year when I'm going through these questions, 
uh, it turns out that there's a family or not necessarily the parents, but maybe at the grandparents' house, there's literally a loaded firearm in the dresser drawer. Yeah. And um, that's her, that's a horrific thought. And the idea that a young child or even a teenager um, is going to see that and not want to touch it and not want to see what it feels like. Um, it's not realistic. Kids yeah. will do that. Accidental deaths by guns um, happen all the time. Yeah. So if you're going to be a gun owner, you need to be a responsible gun owner, especially when there's children around. I think whether there's kids or not, you should have that same standard because you never know who's coming over to visit. Yeah. You know, whether it's a neighbor's kid that's coming over for a few minutes and all of a sudden they're in your bedroom and, you know, open drawers because they don't know. So, yes. Um, alcohol, making sure that's locked up. Yeah. So kids will start to drink it and a little bit is really going to affect them. Right. But that also applies to things like THC gummies and treats that some people have in their house. And that's a new thing in the last, I don't know how many years. They're around. They are and, around. Um, and yeah. And that's a lot of THC for a toddler to eat. And <laughs> we've, I mean, I've seen that happen. I've, Me too. Yeah. And, you know, at the beginning, parents don't even know what happens sometimes. Yeah, and they wonder why the, their child is acting funny. And typically we'll end up going to the emergency room, it seems like. Yeah. And they have a drug screen and they have THC in them. So yep. those it'll take a day or two to get yeah. out of their body when you're eating that much. Yeah. Yeah. So those need to be locked away up. And I think people don't really think about it, but mm -hmm. they look, they're made into brownies and all kinds of yep. things. And to a kid, a brownie is a brownie. Um, baby equipment, make sure it's up to date, that you're using it correctly. So when you put them in their high chair, make sure you use that strap. And this is a good, my personal experience one. Yeah. So I was putting my daughter in her high chair when she was little, um, for a second, she was going to have a snack. I was doing something in the kitchen. I was right there and I didn't strap her in and she stood up and I told her to sit down. And as I walked toward her, she fell off one side when I was on the other side, mm -hmm. she broke her collarbone. Oh. And I felt so bad. I was so guilty <laughs> for a couple days. Yeah. So, but it takes a second for these kind of things to happen. It really, it doesn't take, yeah. So use things properly. Use the safety straps. Um, Even if you're just going to be across the kitchen for a yeah. second. Because they're fast. Yeah, it was yeah. so fast. Mm -hmm. um, toys. Buy toys that are age appropriate. Match them to the age of your child. And, and those recommendations are there for a reason. I mean, they've been tested. And so something that's not appropriate for a kid under three is not appropriate for a kid under three. There's going to be small objects in there that are chokeable, Lego, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. And a good way to look at it is someone told me this a long time ago, the inside of a to uh, like toilet paper roll or something. Mm -hmm. If something will easily go through there, it's too small for your child under three. Yep. That's a good guide very before. visual easy thing yep you can even have your older kids know that okay if it fits through this toilet paper roll then and i think that's important because a lot of you know six seven year olds have younger siblings and they're playing with toys that are appropriate for them but not appropriate for the two-year-old and they can use that visual guide yeah and you can just have toilet paper rolls around and be like okay if this goes through this then yep. they can't play with it yep um outside things streets really yeah. big thing. It's so, a huge thing. you know, your child's ball goes out in the street. They're not thinking about the traffic on the street. No. They want to run after their ball and get it. So and that's make, every parent's nightmare Yeah, because you can visualize that happening, but it, it does happen. So making sure that they're really watched out there and you know, if that ball goes out in the street, you're telling them not to do it and you're going to go get the ball. Yep. Um, in the garage, one more thing, making sure tools are up, like anything that's sharp, just childproofing your garage. If you have old refrigerators or freezers you aren't using, take the top off so they can't get stuck in there. Uh, and that, that happens. Those old refrigerators and freezers literally will lock shut. Mm -hmm. That people haven't gotten rid of just because yep. it's a pain to get rid of them. Yep. Or maybe they're still using them, but, or what we're using them, but it is, that's a huge safety risk. And then making sure that the auto reverse on your garage door is, um, functional. So, mm -hmm. because they can come down on your child and really hurt them. And if the auto reverse, so it hits something, it goes up, if that's functioning. And the way you test that is you take a full roll of paper towels and you put it on the floor in the garage. And that is about the size of the, of the diameter of a toddler. So if a roll of paper towels doesn't make your garage door reverse, then it's set wrong. So it shouldn't, if you put a roll of paper towels in there, the, the door should go back up. That's a great tip. Yeah. That's easy to do. Yeah, and that's actually, I remember when I bought a house recently, that's how the inspector tests the garage door is they take a roll of paper towel and do that. Oh, I think that's great. Yeah. Um, and the, there's also the um, more current garage door openers have that little beam too, the light beam. Yeah. It's the same thing. 
um, so that those just go up if something gets in the way of the beam. Yep. Um, hot tubs. So yes. making sure that they're always covered when they're not in use yes. and that people are out there when there's kids in the hot tub. And latch, there's latches and um, there's a little key you need. So if you really have a two-year-old or maybe a little bit of an older kid, three or four-year-old that could squeeze the little tabs and open the cover, and things are heavy. But if you really want to make sure that you have a safe backyard and you have a hot tub, making sure the cover's on, clipped, and if you really want to, if you're going to be gone for a while, just making sure that things yeah. are latched. Um, and pools, if you have hot tubs or pools out there, um, depends. I mean, a hot tub that I guess is latched and locked probably is a little bit safer, but a pool, some people get covers. Um, there are covers you can walk on and mm -hmm. those are great as long as you keep it completely closed. Um, there's covers that you just float over. Those actually aren't that safe and someone can go underneath it and you wouldn't even know that they were there, yep. but you need to have two, um, safety things. So two, yeah, two different safety things for any pool. Yeah. And so you can have alarms on the door, you can have a gate around it, you can have the type of cover that people can walk on, but you really need two things. You can't just have one. Or a baby barrier fence. Those are great. Yeah. And they're really designed to be around pools and um, they're removable. So if you're having a party, you can pull up a section so that people don't have to go through that. And if you're not having a party, it keeps it closed and the, the gate is self-closing too. So if the pool person comes in to work on your pool, they can't leave it open. It it, it closes. closes, yeah. Um, but drowning is the number one cause of death in kids, I think, under age three or four. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. And, you know, whether it's inside or outside, um, it just, that happens so quickly, too. Yeah. You know, people have a party, they think someone else is watching, and the person goes, on, the little kid goes under, and they don't even realize yep. it. It's horrible. Yeah. Um, helmets. Helmets. So, yes. <laughs> First of all, be a good example. You have no off, no idea how often um, kids will say, I wear a helmet, but mommy doesn't. Or and that really irks me because think about it two ways. One, um, setting a good example. Two, if you fall off your bike and are brain damaged, who's going to take care of your kid? Yeah. So, so I tell people we can fix arms and legs, but we can't fix heads. So yep. you need to protect your head. Yes. So, and from the very beginning, you should get them doing it. When they get on their little tricycle, even though they're so low to the ground, if you're like, you put your helmet on when you get on your tricycle, it's going to become habit and they know to put it on. And it's like car seats. I mean, hopefully no one puts their kid in the car without the car seat, even just to drive down the block. They're in the car seat, even if they're just driving a hundred yards. But it's the same thing. You're in your, you put your bike helmet on before you get on your scooter, before you get in your tricycle. Mm-hmm. And I tell them it happens on tri it happens on scooters, it happens on everything. So anything with wheels, so skateboards, any of those things, you should have your helmet Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Um, car seats. Car seats. Making sure you always use your car well, seat. Well, I just said that, but yes. Making sure it's the right for your right one for your child. And the recommendation is that they should be rear facing um, in a car seat. That's they should be in a rear facing car seat until they're forty pounds or forty inches. Mm -hmm. um, and that's changed a lot over time. It's so a huge you know, people that have a lot of kids, it's weird to continue to have their two or three year old rear facing when their others were forward facing by then. But it's it's safest to face backward. If you were to design the safest car you could design, everybody but the driver, and now with driverless cars, we're going to probably see the driver face backwards, would face rearward because if you're in a head-on collision, yeah. it's safer to be facing rearward if that happens than forward. Neck injuries, spinal injuries, et cetera. And, you know, then there's that in-between age that's really at risk um, of getting hurt when they're in a car accident. So you, know, you should be in a booster seat until you're ideally four feet, nine inches. Mm -hmm. uh, Which is pretty tall. It is pretty tall. It's pretty tall. And, you know, the law says you can be out of the booster seat at age eight, but most kids aren't that tall yeah. and they're still at risk of getting injured if um, they're in an accident. I think my son had, was in a booster, at least the platform, until he was about 10. Oh, I think yeah, it's better yeah. for most kids. Right. And it's not about punishment. It's about the seatbelt. No. The seatbelt has to fit you properly. Yeah. And if you're four foot six and you're sitting in most cars, the seatbelt's not going to fit you properly. Yeah. And you're probably the highest risk of getting hurt. Yep. Um, shouldn't put them in the front seat. Yep. And people do that all the time. Mm -hmm. Their kids want to sit in the front seat, but you should not be in the uh, front seat until you're 13. Mm -hmm. You're not big enough. You're not tall enough in most cases. I know some of them are tall enough, but the airbags will go off and you're more likely to really get hurt. And it punches you in the face pretty mm -hmm. hard. I've never experienced that, but they explode and they will hurt your face yeah. in your head if you're little and... So a couple more things. Um, I think just thinking about house safety in general, making sure you have smoke detectors, 
making sure you check their battery and change the battery every six months or some of the newer long lasting ones have batteries that last 10 years and then you just throw them out and get and, a new one. And one of the, the reminders to change your battery, I think, is when the time changes forward and back, which it still does. That may not be something that uh, goes on for long term. But when the time changes in the fall and the spring, it's a good reminder to change the battery in your yeah. smoke detector. And it's easier to do it then than to be woken up in the middle of the night when it's doing that I really irritating that. chirping beep. It's awful. So. And it's like two in the morning. It never does it during the oh, day. No. And it's awful. And then, and then, well, then if that happens, another, you unplug the battery because you just want to go back to sleep. But that's not a solution. No. So you need to put a new battery in in the morning um, and maybe having some extra nine volt batteries. But just unplugging the battery, that's a danger. If you have unplugged smoke detectors, you're not protected. Yeah, you're not going to get notified early. And there should be a smoke detector in every bedroom and in every hallway and then obviously near the kitchen. So yep. um, fire extinguishers are important. Mm -hmm. You should have at least two in your house. You should mm -hmm. have one in the kitchen. You should have one in the garage. Um, I guess they do expire. They do. And so looking at the expiration date and replacing those every once in a while. And they're cheap. It's like $30 for a fire extinguisher. You can buy them at most, you know, hardware stores and Target and just having a couple around. And there's different types you want to have. I think the ABC one is good for all kinds of fire because putting out a grease fire is definitely different than putting out an electrical fire. Mm -hmm. So having one that works for everything. And the other thing that I think is helpful is... You don't need to have them tested, but teaching your kids, not like a three-year-old, but teaching your kid that's of school age how to operate it. Yeah. I mean, it's very easy, but still just showing them that you pull the pin out. Squirt. Squirt. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, and then I think the biggest thing is, you know, we're coming up with tips of all the different things, how to childproof your house. You can look up tips online, um, but you're just doing the best that you can. You have no idea what your child's going to explore, what looks interesting to them, what they could get hurt with. So you're just trying to be ahead of those things. So do your best, crawl around, pretend you're a child, and you'll find more things over time. And then watch what your kid is doing because yeah. you'll see them getting into interesting things that maybe we didn't talk about today. So, but just don't think that you can watch your child all the time. No right. one can. No. You have to be prepared. Absolutely. So let's talk a little more about just medications that might be around in your house. Um, keeping medications safe and away from children and keeping them away from toddler's hands too. So I know we mentioned uh, making sure that they were locked and they were up high and they were in their original containers with the safety locks on them. But you also have to think about when you go to other people's houses, like a grandparents' house or even friends' houses. You don't know if they're careful with their medication. You don't know what kind of medication is lying around. Um, and a lot of a lot of grandparents have heart medicines and blood of, pressure medicines and stuff that's really more toxic than just your Tylenol or your ibuprofen. Yeah, a lot of yeah. very dangerous medication. Yeah. So that's a hard one because they're not going to suddenly change the way that they're doing everything. If they come over to your house to stay, making sure they're really vigilant about not leaving their medicines out. Um, some grandmas will leave their medication on the bathroom counter to remind themselves to take it. And, you and know, even deciding, do you just put a gate up temporarily um, so that they can't get to the room in the bathroom that the grandparents are using? Um, if you're staying with grandparents, maybe you put a gate at your door or the door they're staying mm -hmm. in. I mean, you have to be creative because I think some of those grandparents aren't going to change the way they're doing it. And the little pillboxes, the AMPM. Yeah, those are easy to open. They're not childproof at all because they're meant to be easily accessed by people who may not have the most nimble of fingers anymore because they're older, but they're also easy to access for toddlers. Yeah, so thinking about anyone who comes to your house or any house that you go to, just making sure you're even a little bit more vigilant watching what's going on. And going to grandparents' house, statistically, a lot of poisonings and accidents happen at grandparents' houses because they don't have the same level of childproofing implemented that you might at your house. And so if a kid spends time there. And sometimes they aren't as agreeable to making some of the changes that need to be done. Mm -hmm. But th there's probably no more horrible thing than something horrible, some poisoning or some accident happening on grandma and grandpa's watch. Yeah. It's going to be awfully guilty. And mm -hmm. so I would just avoid going there and making sure that they have done some things to keep your child safe if they're going to be at grandma and grandpa's house. Yeah. And if they're going to be left there, you can come up with a list of things. These are the things you really need to do to childproof your house. Yeah. Even if it's just temporary, you know, put those pillboxes away somewhere so that the kids aren't going to get into them while they're staying there. And then you can take them out again once they leave. Checklist. Yeah. Well, Lynn, thank you for uh, spending the time talking to us about childproofing. This is a huge topic that I think applies to all parents. 
because there's different developmental ages and there's always that toddler drive to try to get into trouble and do things that maybe are potentially harmful to them that they don't know. So um, this is a great topic. Anything to add? No, I think we covered kind of a broad range of things. We probably left something out. I'm sure we did, which is kind of the point that you can't ever talk about everything. Yeah. But I think it gave people some ideas of things they need to really um, watch for and the way they need to approach childproofing their house and their garage and their yard. Absolutely. So for people listening who might want to hear more from you or come see you or access you in some way, how, how do people get a hold of you? Where do you work? I work um, in Alamo as part of John Muir Medical Group. Um, our address is 1505 St. Alphonsus Way. And our phone number is 925-838-7337. And that's in California. Yes. For those listening nationwide or elsewhere. Well, thanks again. And uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Okay. Thanks. And now let's take a brief break. When we return, we'll hear this week's parenting horror story and also answer a question from a listener. And we're back. Before we proceed with the next segments, I want to remind all of the listeners about our phone-in line, which has been set up for people to call in and leave voicemail questions to be answered on the show. In addition, if you'd like to contribute to our segment, Parenting Horror Stories, you can also use this number. The call-in number is 925-732-6274. Call in with your question or horror story for the show. You can also contact us on Facebook at the Owner's Manual Podcast, where you can leave comments or post questions and stories or idea topics for the show. Whichever way you prefer, we can't wait to hear from you. And I really need more questions. I mean it. Call in with your horror stories or questions. Don't be bashful. Pick up the phone and call or post your question on the Facebook page. So we're continuing our segment, Parenting Horror Stories, today. I'm calling on parents to call in with funny stories or anecdotes about outrageous things that happen when trying to parent. It might be a story that describes your less than greatest moment as a parent, or possibly just something funny or endearing that your child did. You don't have to identify yourself if you're embarrassed, or you can make up a funny pseudonym. So once again, here it is. Parenting Horror Stories. Hi, Dr. Nash. I am calling from Clayton, California with a horror story for you about something that happened to my son. Something, in fact, that I caused to happen to my son. So my son is about seven years old at this time, and he comes to me really groggy in the morning. I'd laid out clothes for him to get dressed. So he put on his jeans, but he couldn't zip them himself. Now I know you think you know where this is going, and I'm happy to say I didn't zip anything. But what I did might actually be worse. So he came to me all sleepy-eyed, and he had his pants unzipped. And you know how at the bottom of the zipper, there's that really thick piece where the denim gets sewn together? And if you're zipping up, somebody else's pants certainly you kind of need something to hold on to the zipper was kind of stuck by the way so I went ahead and grabbed that really thick piece of material at the bottom of the zipper and I grabbed it really really kind of aggressively because I was trying to get leverage on this zipper that was stuck what happened was really unfortunate and actually instead of just pinching as hard as I could just the material I actually got the tip of my son's penis and he hit the floor and started screaming I have never felt so horrible as a parent in my whole life and I certainly can't even fathom what that must have felt like because I don't have those parts 
I quickly ran into my husband and told him what I had done, and you should have seen the look on his face. Like I had ruined my son for all eternity. It's safe to say he doesn't ask me for help pulling up the zipper on his pants anymore, and he almost always flinches if I even try to help him. So that is my horror story. Let this be a lesson to all parents everywhere. It's not just the zipper that you have to fear. It's the thick material at the bottom of the zipper. Don't let it happen to you. Okay. I think I need a moment to recover. Okay, I'm better now. That is horrible. But we've all been there in one way or another. Thanks for sharing. And that's the parenting horror story for the week. And now for this week's phone-in question. Hi, this is Jennifer from Danville calling to find out the difference between the flu vaccines, the live versus the the one that goes in the nose, the flu mist. Um, do they have any side effects? Is one of them live? If my child has allergies, is one better than the other? Thank you. Thanks for calling, Jennifer. Very relevant question for this time of year. Every year, influenza kills about 30,000 people in this country. Most of this mortality affects the elderly or people with underlying lung disease. However, there are always the occasional rare cases of otherwise healthy individuals or children that die from the flu. There are currently two different types of influenza vaccines licensed for use in children in the U.S. The flu shot, as most people call it, which is an inactivated quadrivalent vaccine, and the flu mist, which is a live attenuated quadrivalent nasal vaccine. Quadrivalent means that each vaccine has protection against four different strains of influenza, two against influenza A and two against influenza B. Both vaccines contain protection against the same four strains each year. Each spring, the Centers for Disease Control decides which four strains of influenza are most likely to cause disease for the upcoming flu season. This often is determined by what strains caused influenza the preceding year in Asia. I don't fully understand why what flu strains were in Asia last year determines what we expect to see in this country this fall and winter, but that's how it works. The inactivated influenza vaccine, or flu shot, is an annual injection as the strains that are put in the vaccine vary year to year and the effectiveness of the vaccine does decrease over time. Most people tolerate the vaccine without side effects. Occasionally, an individual may have local redness or soreness at the injection site or a low-grade fever for 12 to 24 hours. It is an absolute myth that a person can get the flu from the flu vaccine. The vaccine contains only inactivated viral particles that are incapable of causing full-blown disease. As with virtually all vaccines, there is the potential for a very rare neurologic side effect that occurs on the order of about 1 in 1 million or so doses. The live, attenuated influenza vaccine is a mist that is sprayed into each nostril. It is also a once-a-year vaccine the live but weakened strand of influenza virus that are in the flu mist, as it's called, have been genetically altered so that it can only live at temperatures of the nasal cavity. If the virus is exposed to human body temperature, the virus dies. Thus, the way that the vaccine works is to set up shop in the nose. The body makes an immune response that produces antibodies at the mucous membrane level. Unlike the injectable flu vaccine, which allows the body to fight off the flu once it's entered the body, the flu mist allows the body to create an immune barrier to keep the flu virus from even getting in. In addition, there is evidence that the flu mist provides more cross-reactivity with strains of influenza that aren't specifically in the vaccine. So, in years when the CDC guesses wrong about what strains will cause the flu, the flu mist may still help prevent or minimize illness, while the injectable flu vaccine is more of an all-or-none thing. In years when they guess wrong, the flu shot doesn't help much. 
Expected side effects from the flu mist include nasal congestion for two or three days following the administration and a low-grade temp for a day or so. The same 1 in 1 million potential for more serious side effects applies to this vaccine as well. The flu mist can be given to people ages 2 through 49 years of age. People with significant asthma and pregnant women should not get the flu mist, but should get the injectable flu vaccine instead, which can be given to kids ages 6 months and up. If a child is under 9 years of age the first year they receive either type of flu vaccine, they should receive two doses of the vaccine four to six weeks apart. This year, the flu shot was produced with ample supply. Because of some manufacturing issues, the flu mist was underproduced, however. As of today, my office does not have any more flu mist remaining, but some other pediatric offices in the area and throughout the country may have some. Australia got hit hard with the flu this past summer, and because of this, it's predicted that we will see a very bad flu season this year. I strongly encourage parents to get your child vaccinated with whichever type of flu vaccine you choose. And that's our show for the day. I hope you enjoyed it. I would really like to thank Dr. Lynn White for taking the time to talk to us about childproofing your home. I think that the information that we discussed today will give parents a good idea about what things to look for and do in the home to avoid accident and injury. By being aware of potential issues, parents can be proactive and do everything they can to keep their children or grandchildren safe. So until next time, this is your host, Drew Nash, wishing you and your child good health, a safe home, and happy parenting. The opinions and beliefs expressed on the owner's manual are that of myself, Dr. Nash, and my guests, and do not necessarily represent those of sponsors or other governing boards. The owner's manual is recorded and produced at Neutron Sound, Danville, California. The content of the owner's manual is the intellectual property of Andrew L. Nash, M.D. and One to One Pediatrics Incorporated. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.